So uh, let me open up tonight by telling you guys a story. Um, During my junior year of college uh, at OU, I began to like a girl uh, whose name was Jenny Zucker. Now, Jenny Zucker was uh, a great girl. She was sweet. She was cute. She um, loved Jesus. She loved others. She had good friends, which is always a good thing to look for in someone you like. Um, She was all these things. In other words, for a change, she was someone that I should have liked. And I did. And so uh, I went out on a few dates with Jenny, which... Let's be honest, probably just men. I said, do you want to hang out? And um, uh, so we hung out. We probably had dinner, went to a movie or something. I don't know exactly what we did. I can't remember. But then after a few dates, I got to that point where I realized, well, I want to keep doing stuff with you, but I feel like I need to say more than do you want to go do something else. So, you know, you had that conversation where I said, Jenny, do you want to be my girlfriend? She said, yes, I would love to, Brent. You're so amazing. Just kidding. Um, And so we became boyfriend and girlfriend, and I still to this day don't totally know what that meant at that point in our relationship. Um, But there we were. And after about a month of being boyfriend-girlfriend, I wasn't really feeling it anymore. Right? You guys know when you don't really feel it anymore. And so uh, I did what any uh, self-respecting, responsible young man would do. I said, well, I'm gonna, I need to tell Jenny that this thing needs to end. And so what I did is I uh, actually went over to the Kappa house at OU where she lived, and I went and did it in person. That's good, right? The only reason I didn't do it over text messages is that wasn't really a thing at that time. <laughs> so there I was, I drove over to the Kappa house at OU, pulled up behind the house. She came and, uh, and got in the car, and I said, Jenny, uh, look, I've been praying about this. Girls, if you ever hear that, call his bluff. Uh, I've, I've been praying about this, and I, I feel like God is telling me it's time for us to take a break. Okay. Um, So I left that night, and um, what Jenny heard me say was, okay, Brent needs a little time. He's stressed out, and he's got all these other things going on, which I did. That was true. So I'm going to back off for a little while, and he said he needed a break, so I'm sure in a few weeks he'll get back with me, and we'll figure out what's next. So uh, four weeks later, hadn't called Jenny back yet. I get a call from Jenny, and she says, hey, I I think we need to talk again. And I said, "Ah." I'm afraid you're right. Uh, So I went back over to the Kappa house, pulled back up right about where it happened the first time, and she got in the car, just like she did the first time, except this time she did most of the talking. She said, Brent, um, you were a jerk. You were a pansy. Uh, What you meant that night was you wanted to break up with me. You did not mean that you wanted to take a break from me. You meant that you were done with me, but that's not what you said. And you need, to, you need to ask my forgiveness. And um, I kind of squirmed that night like I'm feeling right now inside because she was right. She was right. And as I think back on that story and the way that I acted or the way that I didn't act or the things I said or the things I didn't say, I think when we start to see situations like that in those kind of relationships, certainly they happen in a in this similar way but not exactly the same between friendships, uh, we begin to see something that is very true about the, the way that relationships unfold. And it is simply this. They are not the way they were supposed to be. Last week we looked at the way relationships were supposed to be, where we 
talked to one another and communicated, and we, we were kind to one another, we served one another, and all these things. But this week, what we read in this passage and what we get a glimpse into is how it all starts to come unraveled, how relationships become uh, one of those things in our lives that for many of us uh, it was or continues to be, and for many of us it will be what we might call a low point. It might be something we look back on and say, yeah, I'm not super excited about the way that happened. So uh, let's, let's look at this passage together, and then I will uh, pray for us, and then we'll talk about kind of what's going on in this passage and what I think really gets at the heart of why relationships are hard and why we are in it and kind of it gets weird and, and all this stuff. So here's the passage from Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 15. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree with which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at this. God, we do pray that you would send your spirit to open our minds and our hearts, to unstop our ears that we might hear from you through this word tonight. We pray that you would take the meditations of my heart In the words of my mouth, they would be pleasing to you. I pray that I wouldn't be here tonight to to get people to like me or to try to manipulate them somehow to follow me or to think that I'm funny or anybody worth following at all. I pray that tonight that we would see your son Jesus as more believable and beautiful than we've ever seen him before. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. As we look at this passage together for a few moments... What I want us to see is how the Bible presents a convincing reason for all of the relational mess that exists in, this war, in the world today. 
a convincing reason for the relational mess. But there's more than that. We also see the reality of how this relational mess plays out in our lives, how it affects us in day-to-day situations. But then we also see how God remedies this relational mess. So I'm a nerd. That's why it's an alliteration, but we're going to roll with it. So first right there, the reason for relational messiness. As I mentioned, maybe you are here last week, and if you were, that's fine. We put these up on podcasts if you want to catch up on any of them. Uh, If you were here last week, we talked about how the Bible presents this grand picture of this world that God has created. And after he finished creating it and creating mankind in it and giving man woman, uh, a woman to be with so that they could enjoy one another and fulfill the mission that he gave them, he looked out in this world and he said, it is very good. It is very good. The world that he made was great. And it was beautiful. And things worked. And there wasn't relational tension between Adam and Eve or between Adam and Eve and God. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. But tonight we see that that's not the case anymore. Something happened in that garden. What is it? Well, according to the passage right there, the the serpent who Christians throughout time and, and history have always universally said, the serpent is Satan who has embodied this physical creature. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, uh, comes to Eve actually, and asks her and says, Hey, what did God tell you to do? What did he tell you about this tree over here? This tree over here? And she responds and says that we shouldn't eat of it or touch it. And now that's interesting because if we look back at Genesis 2, God did not tell him to not touch it. But here Eve is, he's kind of, she's adding stuff to, to the thing that God originally commanded. And so we could imagine she's getting flustered or, you know, what it's like to, to feel like you're, you're losing a grip on a situation or maybe being manipulated. She, that's happening. And she's saying, he told us we shouldn't eat it or touch it. And if we do, we will die. And Satan turns right around to her and says, you won't surely die. You won't surely die right after God had said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now what happens in Eve and what unfolds in this passage is that as she looks at these two options, she, she says this, I'll decide. I'll decide what I want to do. Satan says, do it. God has said, don't do it. Don't eat of it. Obey me. And rather than Eve having this disposition of saying, I have every reason to trust God. He created this world beautifully. He gave us everything we need. We have plenty of food. He's given me a hot husband. At least he's the hottest one around. He's given me everything I need. Why should I doubt his goodness? And instead of deferring to God and trusting him, she takes it upon herself to to try and make a judgment call here. And she looks at Eve and at the serpent and says, yeah, I'll take it. And so she does. She takes of this fruit that God has said, do not eat of it or you will die. And she takes and eats of it. And y'all, what, what may seem like a very small thing right there is not at all. It's a huge thing. The moment that Eve kind of takes matters into her own hands... And says, I'm going to decide the way that I want to live. I'm going to decide what will give me the joyful life. The moment that she does that, 
everything comes unhinged. And now look, lest you think that I'm like coming at women here, um, the real tragedy of this whole thing is that Adam is just absent. He's the passive man who is nowhere to be found in this passage. Because God had originally come to Adam and given him the instruction about the tree. And here Adam, instead of standing up and saying, no, Eve, don't do that. God, remember, God has told us not to do that. You think that he's totally absent, except the passage later says that he's basically right next to Eve. And he's just totally punted on his responsibility to help her. And to help her not go this direction. So this isn't a passage about how stupid Eve is. This is a passage about how all, all of us are culpable in our rebellion against God. Eve fundamentally decided... That there is a king in this world. There is someone who is in control, who is sitting on the throne of this creation. And I don't like the fact that it's God. I want it to be me. I want to be like God on that throne. And so she takes it into her own hands and she does it. Uh, Again, when I was in college, um, I had a... a, I was going to say I had a few friends. That's probably actually accurate. I had some friends who... um, uh, our senior year, we were what you might call a mischievous, and uh, we decided one Thursday night that we were going to go. Um, Thursday night's a big party night at OU. It's like when all the fraternity sororities do their thing. And um, we decided it would be really awesome to get a water balloon launcher and go over to Greek Row and, like, launch some water balloons into their party. And so uh, at about 1 a.m., I guess it was Friday morning at that point, we head over there with... Uh, about 30 water balloons. We actually only needed one because of what happened. Um, we get across from uh, the SAE house at OU, and I think they've bulldozed it and changed it now, but they used to have this big patio out front, and there were about 150 people out on this patio. It was just totally crowded. I mean, it was, you know, bodies upon each other sort of thing. Um, and we get in this parking lot across the way, and we hoist the water balloon back, and we let it go, and I'm talking... Boom, right in the middle of that crowd. Now, leading up to that event, there were two voices that existed in my mind. There was one voice which said, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. (laughs) That's probably not going to end well if it goes like you guys hope it will go. And the other voice that I was hearing from my friends and really that I really was doing myself was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. And um, we did that. And we should have done this. Because as that water balloon landed in this sea of people, that sea of people spilled over that wall like a tidal wave and came after us. And um, I could hold my own on a foot race. Uh, So I ran for a little while and then threw myself under a car. But our friend Clint, not quite as uh, swift on his feet, he ended up getting chased around OU's campus for About two or three miles, we later figured, in skinny jeans, before those were cool, like in skinny jeans and sambas, like the little, basically minimal soul. It wasn't a good situation is what I'm getting at. What I'm actually getting at is that two-voice thing. You know it. I know it. Eve knew it. And there's something about the human condition from Adam and Eve forward that... We know it, and we love it. There's something about rebellion that's just fun in and of itself. It's appealing. It promises to bring joy in life. 
and we give in to it. So God's voice was there saying, obey me and don't eat. Satan's was saying, eat. Because if you eat of it, you don't have to be under God. You can be like God. You can be the king of your world. And friends, that gets at the heart of something that is very true of all of us. That we want to be king of our lives. We want to be in control of everything that happens in us and around us. And this is not just for you control freaks out there, or what, what when I call schedulers, or I like to plan. That means you're a control freak. Um, this is true of all of us. And what that manifests itself as is self-centeredness. Because what's being rejected by Adam and Eve in this passage is God as the center of their lives and really the center of the universe. And it's them putting themselves at the center. And that is what Christians have forever called sin. Sin is mankind substituting himself for God. That whereas God belongs on the throne of our lives, rightly telling us how we should live because he knows what's best, helping us... All these things, what we do is we take ourselves and put ourselves on the throne and say, No thanks, God. I've got this. I'm going to decide for myself what is best and how I should live. And and we see this self-centeredness, this sin thing, flowing out in our lives in a myriad of ways that you've never even considered. But we'll consider a few. Think about how you decided what you were going to do last weekend. What did you do? Why did you do what you did? Well, you did what you did because that's what you wanted to do. Because you thought it would be more fun for you, or you certainly didn't want to be bored, and so you wanted to do that. Um, Okay, so why did you do that and not the other thing? Well, because it's somewhere along the way you've decided that you want to maximize pleasure and entertainment because that's kind of the chief virtue of our age is entertainment. You know, uh, uh, don't be bored. Don't be boring. Why, why do you want to be entertaining or be entertained? Because you don't want to be seen as bored or as boring. Why would you do that thing and not the other thing, right? Because you wanted to do it. It just is fundamentally the way we make decisions. Think about ourselves in relationships. Maybe you've been in a romantic relationship, dating relationship. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. You can really substitute friendship here. But romantic relationships are more fun to pick on. Uh, So think about a romantic relationship. How often do these things get started, not really out of a sense of, oh, I want to love and serve this person so much, but how much more is it, I just love the way she makes me feel. I can't believe she likes me. I just like that he likes me. It feels amazing when he texts me a thousand times a day. makes me feel euphoric. You're in it for yourself. Do you see that? It's really not about the other person. It's not about the good that you can do together in the world. It's about the way it serves you and makes you feel. We do it with friends. We do it in all kinds of ways in our lives. And notice how these relationships end many times. Oh, I'm just not that into her anymore. I really want some of my me time back. I'm tired of feeling like I always have to do uh, what he or she wants me to do. We get into it because it's about us, and we get out of it because it's about us. Because, friends, at the end of the day, 
It's about us. This is the reason for our relational mess is that we, we are living us-centric, us-centered, self-centered lives. Now, I realize that at some level, we have to make decisions for our own life. Um, that's part of living and breathing in this world. It's not all sinful. All right, I get all that. But what I am saying is that after the fall, no one lives with a deference to God and what He wants We defer to ourselves and what we want. And that is the reality around us. That is the the reason why everything has fallen apart. That's That's the reason that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So if that's the reason, then what are the implications? Well, let's look at the reality of relational messiness right there next in your outline. So think about this. If at this point in the semester, having gone to uh, syllabus days of your classes and having had uh, many, a couple weeks worth of regular class periods, you make an executive decision that you're not going to do all this stupid stuff that your professor's telling you you need to do. You kind of make this unilateral decision that I'm just not going to read. I'm not going to do the problem sets. I'm not going to study. I'm not even going to show up for the test. I'm going to show him. Uh, you may gain a sense of, like, awesomeness or independence or you're bold or courageous. Uh, something may, like, happen in you, but what's also going to happen is you're not going to be a TU student much longer. Um, there's a reality that unfolds from that decision. And, friends, if you do that, you're going to give up um, this four-year vacation uh, called college. <laughs> kind of, but kind of, yeah. Um, you don't realize that yet, but college is really amazing. So that's why all your parents are like, no, it's the best time of your life. Don't graduate so fast because it gets harder. Um, in a related way, when Adam and Eve fundamentally decided that they wanted to do what they wanted to do and they want to put themselves on the throne, what happens is that damage and destruction follows. And we see that in the passage right here. Look down, and we're going to see four ways that this damage and destruction uh, comes to bear uh, in this passage. The first sign right there of the reality of this messiness is is self-protection. Look in verse 7. Adam and Eve, after they have sinned, they feel exposed for their nakedness. They feel exposed, and so they they do what? They, They run and try to cover themselves up. Have you ever felt that? Where you do something in a relationship, maybe just in a conversation with a group of people, maybe just with one person in a friendship, or maybe with a guy or a girl that you like, when you, you do something and you feel exposed and you run and you just want to hide. You want to take the words back. You, want to, you just want to disappear. Self-protection is now part of our world because of the fall. A second thing that we see, a second sign of this relational messiness is that there is spiritual separation. There's spiritual separation. Look at verse 8 right there. Adam and Eve, not only were they hiding and embarrassed and ashamed of each other, from each other, they hide from God. Now, whereas before, what we saw last week is Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God. They were comfortable in His presence. He loved them and they loved Him. Now they are hiding from God. And when God comes in the garden, He says, where are you? 
You used to be here and now you're not here. What happened? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat? Next thing we see is shame. Right there in verse 10, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. Friends, shame, as, I'm, as I touched on last week, shame is the sense not just that I did something wrong, but that there is fundamentally something wrong about me. That there's a blemish on my character. That there's something about me that, that if others find out about it, it will make me unlovable and unlovely. They will never want to be around me. That's what's happening with Adam. He says, I was afraid because I knew that I was naked. There's a sense of shame that he's carrying with him. He feels so unworthy and so dirty. Fourthly, right there, we see the reality that there is blame now in play. Verse 12, God confronts Adam about his sin. And he looks and says, it's the woman's fault. It's kind of funny if it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, Adam says, no, 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 no. It's, it's Eve's fault. And then Eve says, no, it's not my fault. It's, it's the serpent's fault. And maybe you felt that in your life. Whenever you've done something wrong, what do we do? We look for the nearest thing to blame it on. I have young kids right now, and it's just a circle of laughter whenever it's time to like own up for something going wrong. She did it. She did it. Mommy did it. It's like, no, mommy didn't do it. Um, like, any, I'll just blame anybody. The, man, the mailman did it. We've heard the craziest things. Man, it's been, it's been amazing. We blame others for the mistakes that we make. It's part of the human condition from that point forward, right now included. The Bible is unbelievably honest about the, re- the reality of how messy our relationships are. It says they're consumed with all of these things. And the reason they're consumed with these things is that we are living for ourselves. We self-protect. There's separation because we wanted to do what we wanted to do, spiritually speaking. There's shame because we did what we wanted to do and now we feel that and now we want to hide. And there's blame because we don't want to be at fault. It's all about self-centeredness, about selfishness. Now think about this. When that is the fundamental disposition of your heart, self-centeredness, then everybody, then people that you come into relationship with, whether romantically or just at a friend level, or even your parents in in a different but similar way, People will become one of two things in your life. They will either be a vehicle to help you get what you've decided that you want or need, or they will become an obstacle that keeps you getting from getting what you want or need. Because of self-centeredness, people will either become a vehicle to help you in your plans for a great life, or they will be an obstacle to seeing that great life come to fruition. Let's talk about how this unfolds for just a second. If you have a boyfriend and you have uh, kind of internally demanded from him that he always gives you attention, that he's always checking in with you over text message every now and then, that he always stands beside you whenever, whenever you're out in public, that he always makes plans with you on the weekend or at least checks with you before he makes other plans on the weekend. If you have this deep-seated neediness to him, then, then when he does those things that you're demanding of him, when he's a vehicle to helping you feel significant in the world and like you're needed and wanted, then you will do what? You will respond to him with affection. 
you will be happy with him and you'll let him know those things that, hey, things are right. And it's because he's giving you what you want. Whereas if, if he doesn't stand by you at parties and instead he's off talking to other people, um, not necessarily other girls, just other people, his friends. If he's not checking in with you over text and it's been like 30 minutes since he's texted me back, oh my gosh, who's he with? What's her name? When all of these things start to happen, he has become an obstacle to you getting the thing that you think you need, which is all this relational neediness. And so how do you treat him? You're angry at him. You're frustrated with him, and you will tell him about it. Where have you been? Why have you? I've been texting you. I know. I see it. If he's doing what you want, he's a vehicle. If he's not, he's an obstacle. Now, guys, not so quick. If you demand from a girl that she always respects you, that she honors you, that, that she says nice things about you in, in private and maybe even in front of your friends, if she builds you up and your seeming, seemingly endless need for attention and affirmation, if she's doing those things, she's a vehicle for you to get what you want. You're using her. You would never say that, but you're using her. But if she cuts you down in public and others hear it, or if she does it in private and maybe it's just you that hears it, and if she's not always just at your beck and call telling you how amazing you are because you've decided you need to be told that you're so amazing, if she's not doing that for you, she's an obstacle for you and you treat her accordingly. Maybe you actually punish her by going and playing video games on the weekends and not even telling her about her, or going and hanging out with your bros and like just being absent, just kind of a little, you know, little jab, a little silent way of letting her know that, hey, we're not good anymore. We do that kind of stuff because we're self-centered and we want to use people to get what we want out of relationships. Here's the reality. Our relationships are so messy and so hard and so complicated because we're self-centered. We're in it for ourselves. And therefore, relationships are essentially either Sorry, relationships are essentially an opportunity to use other people to get what we've decided that we need or want. Now that sucks to realize that, y'all. It's really hard to start looking around you at your friend groups about the kind of people that you've surrounded yourself with, very carefully surrounded yourself with, and you start asking yourself, why did I pick them? Why do I like him? Why do I like her? Why do I like these people? I had a a campus minister in college, my RUF campus minister. He looked at me my senior year of college and said, Brent, every time you walk into a room, your eyes scan the room and you only talk to the girls that you think are on a scale of seven or above on on a beauty factor. He said, you can stand back and watch you. You... The people who are not pretty in your eyes don't exist, and that is sinful. What is it for you? What are the reasons why you've chosen to surround yourself with the people you have? How are you using other people from this position of self-centeredness? This is a reality in our lives. This is the reality of the relational mess. So what's to be done? What's to be done? Well, God gives us a remedy for this. In Genesis 3.15, I'm going to reread it. You can look down with me if you want. 
God is speaking to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or in Hebrew that word can mean crush. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or strike or crush his heel. What God does in this passage, he makes a promise that one day there will come a descendant of this woman who will crush Satan finally, who will crush sin and self-centeredness finally. But he himself will be bruised in the process. One is a mortal wound, the crushing of head. The other is a serious wound. It is a, it is a wound to the heel. It is real. One is on an eternal scale. One is on a temporal scale. And friends, this is talking about Jesus. This passage here at the very beginning of the Bible is a foreshadow of Jesus. He is the remedy to our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and everything that is wrong in our relationships. Let me show you how. On the night before Jesus was killed on the cross, he also was in a garden, like Adam and Eve. And just like Adam and Eve, Jesus also had a choice to submit to God or to not submit to God. And just like Adam and Eve, he was afraid. See, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was there saying, God, is there any other way for your redemption to happen? Take this cup from me. I'm terrified is what he's saying. But where Adam and Eve rejected life and brought about death, Jesus chooses death to bring life. Whereas Adam and Eve hide their shame and their guilt by covering themselves with these plants and later God covers them with loincloths. Where Adam and Eve run and hide, Jesus goes up on a cross naked and ashamed for the world to see. Not just so that he can understand and feel your shame, which he did, but so that he can take your shame. Not just so that he can know what it's like to be exposed before others, but so in his exposing himself before others, you might find yourself covered in him. Friends, Adam and Eve run away from life and plunge everything into death. And at the cross, Jesus plunges into death and he brings everything back to life. That is at the heart of of what Christians call the gospel. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would he willingly go to that cross? It's because of this. He's taking punishment that rebels like you and me deserve from God. Sorry, he's taking the wrath that rebels like you and me deserve from God. He is, he is looking and saying, I know you have done that. I know that you have rebelled against God in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and ever since then... You are rebelling against him by wanting to control your life. And I'm going to go up on the cross and take the punishment for that rebellion so that you might go free. So what that means is is if the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, then the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Jesus takes what we deserve and we get what he deserved. It's the great switch. It's the substitutionary work of Jesus for us. Let me end with this story real quick. I've been married to Sarah, my wife, for nine years now. 
And it's all been amazing. Just kidding, it hasn't. It's been hard. And amazing, but really hard. The day that I married her, March 27th, 2006, uh, my relationship to her changed instantly on that altar. The ways that it changed is that I no longer worried if she was the right one for me. I no longer worried if she was going to break up with me. I no longer, I no longer worried, was worried that if she was going to look at me one day and see me for who I really was, which I knew wasn't always awesome, I didn't really worry about that if she was going to leave or not. Another thing changed that day, the way that I related to other girls. It changed dramatically. I didn't need all this affirmation from the other girls around me. I didn't care what they said about me. Because I had the security of Sarah's love and her promise to be with me and that she loved me. Friends, coming to Jesus is a little bit like a marriage in a sense. And here's how. When you are reassured of His love for you, His commitment for you, His affection for you, His choosing you, And some of those insecurities and those fears that you have about yourself and your life, they begin to melt away because you become secure in Him. So the insecurities leave. Whereas before you were needy and needed others to fill you, in Jesus you're filled and you're not as needy. You don't don't need people for your own happiness. You don't need them to get what you want. You can ask them what they want and you can begin to serve them. So instead of use them, you can begin to serve them. And finally, before you were so selfish and autonomous, you thought you were the one in charge, but what you found is that living that way is exhausting, isn't it? Playing God over your life is exhausting. And friends, it is exhausting in relationships too. And what Jesus offers you is He he offers to fill you He offers you security. He offers you that if you come to Him, He will give you rest from being God because you will acknowledge that He is God. And when you find Him at the end of the day, you will see that you are able to finally rest and be free. And this is different from just believing in God. This is taking God at His Word and bringing Him into the center of your life and putting Him on the throne and saying, Will you reestablish me by reestablishing me with you. And when you become right with God that way, it begins to change all these relationships. Because you are freed from yourself. That's what Jesus does for us. It's an invitation. Let's pray together.